Amen. You can be seated. Amen. That'll get your toe tapping, right? Wake you up. Tell you what, that water up there is hot. It's like going from a hot tub to coming out and preaching. I, I, uh, I've been in them when the heater didn't work before, and that's not good. Uh, but at least it keeps you awake. You don't come out hot. But praise the Lord, we can baptize. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Have you ever thought about the songs that we sing in church? You ever thought about the words to some of the songs? I mean, this was a perfect example. I mean, what if you'd never been in church before, you'd never come in, and somebody invited you to come, and you come in, and you sit down, and we start singing about being washed in the blood? What? What would you think? I mean, you, you guys that have grown up in church, you know that terminology, you know what that means, but what about somebody that hadn't been in church, that's not used to church, didn't grow up in church? You, they're singing about being washed in blood and having blood covering you, and what does all that mean? Have you ever thought about any other songs, any other hymns that we sing? Maybe uh, some of the choruses that we sing. You know, there are a lot of songs that have not just some culturally difficult parts, but have some theologically difficult parts. Now, there are a lot of words to songs that are great encouragement. Some songs that can give you something to cling to when you're struggling, can give you something to hold on to. Uh, songs that give you blessings during times of difficulty. But there are some songs that just honestly, theologically, kind of miss the mark. And, and I think sometimes in church, we take songs as being the gospel. And sadly, we remember songs that get stuck in our memory and they stay with us a lot longer than memory verses or sermons. And so we repeat songs songs throughout our life that maybe didn't have too good of a meaning or maybe didn't really fit theologically with what the Bible says. And sometimes that can do harm. I can remember a song, maybe some of you that grew up in church can remember when I used to go to children's church as a kid. uh, One of my favorite songs, we used to sing it all the time. We would, uh, it had motions to it. So if you have motions to it, you got to sing it all the time, right? But it would start out and the leader would say, I'm, and he'd carry it out and everybody know that that was the time for you to get, everybody would stand up and he'd say, I'm in right, I'm outright, I'm upright, I'm damn right, I'm happy all the time. Anybody remember that? Am I the only one that ever danced to that? That was Baptist dancing there. And you'd do it again, and, and it'd get faster and faster. He'd get back up and say, I'm in right, outright, upright, downright, happy all the time. Or you'd clap happy all the time. Since Jesus came inside and took my sin away, I'm in right, outright, I can forget it now. Someone will say, downright, happy all the time. And that, that song just stays with you. But think about the words to that. Since Jesus took me in and cleansed my heart of sin, I'm happy, happy, happy all the time. Are you? What happens to that kid when all of a sudden he doesn't have a happy day? He starts thinking, well, maybe something's wrong with me. Maybe... I didn't get the same Jesus because they're all singing happy, 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 and and I'm not real happy today. Because Jesus never really promised us happiness. He promised us joy, and there's a big difference. You say, well, Rusty, you're being like that old man sitting on his lawn chair yelling at people in the grass, and that's not really what I want you to intend. I want you to start thinking. Not trying to nitpick. What about the one that all of us know, even if you didn't grow up in church? You You know what I'm talking about? If Baptists had hand signs, Christians had that would be one. In Texas A&M, when the yell leaders want to do a yell, they have these hand signs, and everybody does it in the whole state. If you, you guys are just getting introduced to Texas A&M by SEC football, you'll watch them. They all do these different signs and all this, and that tells what the yell is. Well, if we had that in church, everybody, this would be the sign 
for that little song that we all know, this little light of mine, right? I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, right? Won't let nothing keep it out. I'm going to let it shine, hide it under a bushel. No, right? I'm going to let it shine. You guys look, yes, no, you just registering, taking you back. What about the third verse? Won't let Satan it out, right? I'm going to let it shine. See, the problem with that is, is the Bible didn't say you have a light. The Bible says you are light. There's a difference. Because, see, when I was a kid, I used to think that the light that I had, I had to, it was fragile. Man, they're coming to put it under a bowl, and Satan's wanting to blow it out, and I got to keep this thing. You know, what is going to happen? Somebody's going to take it away from me. But see, Jesus says in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you, now that you've become Christ-filled, are the light of the earth. You're the light of the world. And he said, a city on a hill can't be hidden. He said, you don't take a lamp and light it and, and hide it under a bowl. He says, no, you put it on a lampstand because it's on a lampstand, it lights up the whole house. You have a light, you, you are a light. And so in that light in you, it shines everywhere. And you say, well, that's just semantics. No, it's a huge difference. Because there's a lot of Christians that live their life as if they have a light and it is fragile and Satan is going to come and blow it out. And just think about that. Can Satan blow out something that God lit? And you say, well, Rusty, it's just a little song. Well, Paul's going to talk about this idea of light and what it means in our passage today. And I want to make sure that you understand from the get-go that the light that you have inside of you is not something out here fragile that can be blown out, that can be snuffed out, that can be taken away. And that there is a big difference for the Christian over having something and being something. And it also probably gives us the lesson that you and I probably shouldn't take our theology from songs. They're good encouragement, but if you're looking for theological lessons, stick to the Word of God. It'll never disappoint you. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to our passage this morning. Ephesians chapter 5. And uh, while we are going through it, and uh, we're going to start up in verse 7. I know some of you are still singing, happy all the time, right? Inside, outside, upside, downside, inside, outside. I'm going to keep saying it, and that way it'll be stuck in your head for the rest of the day. Happy, happy, happy all the time. What, what Paul is doing here in Ephesians chapter 5, and we've been in it a couple of weeks, is he starts out in Ephesians 5.1 by telling us, you are to be imitators of Christ. That those of you that have Christ living inside of you are to imitate, to mimic is what the Greek word says, Christ in all that you do. And he talked a little in verses 2 and 3 about that, and then he switched gears, and last week he talked about all of the things that don't emulate Christ. And the main heading last week that he talked about that Christians fall into more than anything else is sexual immorality. And it was a touchy subject. I, I know especially in the 11 o'clock service, there were some, you talk about sex in church, people get a little uncomfortable. But, it, you know, I, and I, I warn you, we're about to get to this section on marriage and we're going to talk about sex and we're going to talk about sex a lot. And uh, because I don't think we talk about sex enough in the church. Let, let me just be honest with you. I told you last week. God created sex, and, and God created sex, and he created sex to be fun. He created sex to be fun and great and wonderful, but within the confines of marriage. 
And all of the guidelines that he gives us warn us of what happens to those sexual activities that take place outside the guidelines. And we learned last week from Paul's warning about sexual immorality that he's not just talking about the act of sex, but sexual immorality, the word porneia, includes all sexual activity, any sexual activity outside the bonds of covenantal marriage. And he warned us, he said, those kind of sins are worse than other sins, not because they send you to a darker hell or make you farther away from God, but they sin against yourself because the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And now Paul is going to link what he just said there to this next passage, this next group of scripture that we're going to pick up in verse 8. But I wanted you to see 7 again where we left off last week because a lot of your Bibles have 7 lumped into the paragraph above. But it really should go to the paragraph below because in in the very first verse, the first part of chapter 7, he says, therefore. And we've always learned that therefore links. What does he say, therefore? Therefore, do not be partners with them. And the word he uses is the same word that Paul uses in chapter 3 when he talks about the Jews and the Gentiles coming together and being co-sharers in the glory of God. He used that same word. He said, don't be co-partakers. Don't be co-sharers with who? With the people that glorify sexual immorality. See, what he wants us to understand is it's almost impossible And he's about to introduce light and darkness. It's almost impossible for us to let the light of Jesus Christ shine in us and through us if sexual immorality is a part of our lives. Why? Because sexual immorality will dim the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Because this is his house. And we talked early on the difference between a house and a home. And if if the Holy Spirit finds a home in your heart, a place that he can reign and rule and be comfortable, power will be evidenced in your life. But sexual immorality is like hammering boards on the window of the Holy Spirit's house. He can't shine. You, you hammer the door. You lock, put locks on it. He can't get out and shine. And Paul, once again, is warning us, don't be wrapped up, a joint participant, with people that live like that. And then in verse 8, he's going to introduce this idea of light, this little light. But before he does that, I I just wanted to make sure you understood what is the difference between light and darkness. Because it's not a new concept. When we walk through 1 John, John likes to talk about it a lot. But this is the first time that Paul introduces it here in Ephesians. Jesus talked about it. I, I quoted from the Sermon on the Mount a minute ago. But the idea of light and darkness goes all the way back to the very first verse of the Bible. Remember what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated light from darkness. You see, the idea of light and darkness not having any fellowship or any function began at creation. When God formed and created the world, it was dark. Now, you need to understand darkness, by definition, means the absence of light. That's what physicists say. Darkness isn't just dim. Darkness isn't just uh, blankness. It's not just us turning the lights out in here and a bunch of you being in the dark. Darkness is complete, utter void. It is uh, barren. It is sterile. It is non-existent for any life and and. The Bible says darkness is the opposite of light. And so God introduced light, whereas light is transformative. Light is illuminative. Light is active. Light moves. But God said light and darkness can't exist together. Now I want you to think about that. Even the smallest light ceases darkness to be darkness. 
Do you understand that? See, a lot of us, what we call darkness is not really darkness because darkness is the complete absence of any light. Probably not many of you in here that hadn't been in a mine or to the the ocean or into the heavens has not ever experienced complete darkness. You can go in your room, you can turn off the lights, you can blacken the walls, and there's still some kind of light penetrating in. Where I grew up on the Gulf Coast of Texas, uh, we had refineries everywhere. I didn't know what darkness was because they always had these big flames burning. And so at night it would get dark, but it was, you could walk around in it. And you had lights everywhere. And people would say, did you see the stars? Well, you couldn't see the stars. I guess you could partially see stars, but the light blocked that out. And, and then I remember going to Colorado on a backpacking trip and getting up on the top of a mountain. And we were as far away from civilization as I guess we probably could be. And, and you could see lights way over in the, 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 the background, but, but that was still enough to block out some because you could see light. But it was darkness there. But there was still light coming from the stars. See, complete and utter darkness is no light. It is complete void. I want you to imagine that. We can't imagine it because most of us, like I said, have never experienced it unless you were born blind. Complete and utter void. Now, I want you to keep that in mind as Paul gives us this warning in verse 8. You were once darkness. I want to read that again. I want you to hear the difference between what you think it said and what it does say. You, talking to the believer, were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Does he say you are, or you have light in the Lord? He says you are light. You were darkness, void, completely empty, but you are now light. Live as children of the light. And he gives a parenthetical. For the fruit of the light consists of goodness, righteousness, and truth. And he said, and find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. He's giving us teaching on light and darkness for it is light that makes everything visible that is why it is said wake up O sleeper rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you now there's a this verse this little pericope partial partial scripture gets misused a whole lot and gets proof text a whole lot for people to justify the idea that Christians are supposed to not have anything to do with people that are not Christians Because he says there, don't even be partakers, don't be partners, have nothing to do, expose it. And and so a lot of Christians think that this gives us free reign to, to find these cloistered societies that we've begun to see in North America. They were supposed to get away from the world and, and, and get in these holy huddles, which is what I've called them before. And, 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 you know, all we associate with are Christians. And somehow by doing that, we will separate ourselves from the sin. The only problem is, is we, our old nature, still has that sin nature in us. And so it doesn't matter how many Christians we surround ourselves with, the sin is still there. You can't get rid of envy and greed and lust by separating yourself from the world. But a lot of people think that because he says here that we're to expose it and have nothing to do with it, that that justifies us leaving. The problem with that is Paul is trying to tell us just the opposite, the dangers of taking the light away from the darkness. Because you see, if you take all the light out of the darkness, what hope is there for the darkness? 
And so I want to show you a couple of things this morning that jump out of this passage from me that I think help us understand what it means to walk in the light. And the first thing that jumps out is what he's really trying to help us understand is we are called to be present but not participate. Now, a lot of you have heard Jesus in in John 17, Jesus prays his prayer for the disciples and he talks about us being in the world but not of the world. And that's exactly what Paul is trying to get across to us, that as Christians, we are called to be a part of the world. But because we're a part of the world, that doesn't mean we have to be of the world. We don't have to live the same principles of the world. You see, when it comes to how a Christian is supposed to live, you have two extremes, and both extremes are wrong. You have those that say, as I said a moment ago, we're supposed to get away. We're not supposed to have anything to do with them. I only go uh, to church and I watch Christian TV and I see Christian movies and I have Christian baseball leagues and I go to a Christian gym and, and all, only friends I have are Christians. That all sounds well and good, but that's not what we're called to do. Matter of fact, the very reason that God left us on this earth is so that we could shine his light in us in the darkness. And the idea that we're supposed to remove ourselves from it is somehow going to help us or the darkness is completely unbiblical. Then you have the other extreme, and and you don't see that much today, but there is some that says that, well, if I'm supposed to live in the world, then then I guess I need to know what the world is going through. So for me to understand the struggles they have, then I need to sin like they sin because it's going to help me be relational. It's kind of a reverse rationalization. If I, need to, if I want to know how an addict feels, then maybe I should do some drugs because that will help me get in that mindset of theirs. And you say, that sounds silly. You rationalize the same thing. You hear somebody give a testimony and they talk about their past and they talk about things that have gone on in their past. And we think, well, I, don't, I didn't do anything bad. I guess I can't be a great witness unless I try some of these things. So I know how to say no to those things. Listen, you don't have to taste poison to know it'll kill you. You don't have to try sin to know it will destroy you. What Paul is trying to get across is that we are supposed to engage and participate and be present in the world, but not participate in the things of the world. You see, we have to live here. And by separating ourselves, all we do is disengage from the people that need us the most. And it's time for us as Christians to open our eyes to realize that the answer for a lost world is not for us to lock our doors and hide ourselves, but it is to take the light that we are now and walk among the darkness. Paul clarifies it in Corinthians because people are saying, well, we need to get away from all those that act this way. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, chapter 5, verse 9, For I have written you in the past letters to not associate with sexual immoral people. He says, but not at all meaning the people of the world who are immoral or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters, because if that was the case, you would have to leave the world. See what Paul was saying, he goes on to say, what I meant when I said don't do anything, don't be partakers with those that are practicing sexual immorality, I was talking about those in the church. Because see, what he's writing to here is Christians. And when he says, don't participate and be a part of that and don't get around those, he said earlier last week, those that try to justify their lifestyle and say it's okay, he says, have nothing to do with those people. He said, but those that are lost out in the world, we have got to engage them. Stop pointing fingers and start washing feet. Get out and be amongst them, not running away. You see, as I read you last week, we can live 
and love someone. We can engage people. We can be a part of their lives without compromising our values. Without trying to approve or give approval to any kind of lifestyle or action. I thought it was funny this week. You may have seen on the news some of the Republican presidential candidates have come out and said they were against gay marriage. And so news media, some of the news media has tried to get gotcha questions by asking them. Well, if you had a good friend that was gay and they were having a wedding, would you go? And I love what Marco Rubio and Paul Walker said basically the same thing. He said, yeah, I'd go. They're my friend. I love them. Just because I don't approve of what somebody does or their lifestyle doesn't mean I don't engage in their life. Somebody asked me one time, what should I do? I said, I would go. Do you love them? Listen, I don't know that I'd go, but I don't go to my straight friend's weddings. I don't like weddings. But if you love somebody and their lifestyle doesn't stop you from loving them, if we're going to disengage with all of the sinners and not participate in their lifestyle, then we're all going to be lonely in our own little rooms. And certainly don't look in the mirror because it starts with us. You see, we've got to learn to engage. Paul says we need to be present but not participate. The second thing I think he points out to us here is we need to remember but not return. This is the fourth time in the book of Ephesians that Paul reminded us who we were before we accepted Jesus Christ. He uses this emphatic statement by saying you were. And the idea there is that is a past nature. You were darkness. You were darkness, not in darkness. You see, what he wants to get across to us is that the person that is separated from Jesus Christ doesn't live in darkness. They are darkness, which means they're blinded by their darkness. He said, don't you remember what it was like to be darkness, to spread darkness? See, darkness is what? The absence of light. And spiritual darkness is the absence of spiritual light. And I think sometimes it's good for us to remember our past. I think especially those of you, I've been a Christian since I was six years old. And so for 42 years, I've been walking the life of Christ. Not perfect, surely not. Hot mess a lot of the time. But for 42 years, I've been a part of the kingdom of God. It's easy for somebody that's been a Christian for a long time to forget what it was like to need grace and to need mercy. So it's easy for us to forget where exactly we were before we encountered Jesus Christ. That we were in the puddle in midst of our mess sin. See, sometimes in the church, we we start feeling pretty good about ourselves and we look down on other people, especially lost people. Man, they are horrible. I can't believe they are doing that. And we don't remember that in God's eyes, we were just as repugnant. He turned his nose up at us just as much as he does at that. Not because of anything we did, but because of the sin in our life. And God, in spite of where I was, did something for me that I could not do for myself when he redeemed me and he saved me. And it's good for us to remember what that was like. But in remembering, we don't have to go back to it. He says, you were, but you are now light. And you see, light, when it tries to embrace the darkness, will never work. Because he says in another 
book, what fellowship does light have with darkness? It can't. And he says, don't you understand how silly it is for you now being light to try to embrace things that were darkness? It corrupts. It doesn't fit. It, it messes you up. And then he gives us these examples of, uh, of what a person that walks in the light will walk in. And he, he gives three examples there that are real simple. He ta- says goodness and righteousness and truth. Goodness is the same exact word he gives in Galatians 5 for, for uh, the fruits of the Spirit. He says when, when you are walking in light, these are things that will be evident in your life. You will see goodness. And that just means love and action. It relates to how we relate to people out in the world. He said, we will walk a life of goodness in the light. He says, we'll walk a life of righteousness. And righteousness just simply means integrity with God. He says, you will walk a life living, trying to live, being who God has called you to be. That is righteousness. He said, you'll also walk a life of truth. And that word truth there is the same word Paul uses back in chapter 3. When he talks about the church and how we are supposed to be truthful to one another. Remember that word means without hypocrisy. And ironically, if goodness relates to how we live out there and righteousness relates to how we live with him, truth relates to how we live with ourselves. Because you see, when light shines and light comes in, the first place it penetrates is ourselves. And God says, and Paul writes, that for us to walk in the light and to be the light, we have to be honest with every area of our life and let the light shine in every area. We can't close the door. We can't lock a closet. We've got to say, Holy Spirit, have it all. See, Jesus said in Matthew 7, you'll know a tree by its fruit. You'll know light when you see it by what it produces. And light always illuminates. Light always brings change. Light always shows us things. Paul is warning us here. We need to remember, but don't return to who you were. We need to be present in this world, but not participate in this world. And the last thing that I think is probably the most important thing for us to remember is we need to shine, but serve as we shine. Listen to what it says in verse 11. I told you this gets misquoted a whole lot. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Now, you see, that word rather expose them, a lot of people take that as a personal job. There is not a job description for Christian exposing sin, okay? That's not a spiritual gift. It's not something. But we think it is, amen? And I always find it funny that the sin we expose are always the sins that we never struggle with, right? And those are always the worst sins. See, it's easy to get up and talk about something like homosexuality because most of the people don't struggle with homosexuality. It's easy for us to rant and rave and and get mad and angry. When's the last time we got that angry about gluttony? Don't get me started on Krispy Kreme. Let's just be honest. When was the last time we rant and raved about lust and how lust destroys people? Listen, I want you to understand, lust destroys more people's lives than homosexual activity ever will. Does that mean it's any worse or any better? No, it doesn't mean it's any worse or any better. But it's not our job to have to worry about exposing other people's sin. 
There is nothing, I can't find any place in the New Testament or in the teachings of Jesus that ever say you are to go out and condemn and expose other people's sin. Jesus never did. Jesus pointed it out. Sin, he gave them warnings, gave them guidelines. But as close as he came to condemning a sinner's lifestyle is by saying, go and sin no more. See, we can't get mad. Listen, we learned last week the two truths that I told you that if you got anything out last week, I hope that you wrote those down and I hope you remember them because these are the two truths that most of us forget. First of all, you do not define what is a sin. As much as we'd like to, God doesn't go by your list of what is a sin and what is not a sin. God goes by his book, his word, his truth. You don't get to say, that's not that big of a sin, or that's just a little white lie, or that's not uh, consequentially a big sin. God says what is sin, and all sin destroys And as Christians, we hate sin. I hate sin in your life. I hate sin in my life. I hate sin in their life. Why? Because it separates people from God. And it destroys people's lives. But I don't get to make the list. It's in here. And since I don't get to make the list, I don't get to judge. Because that's not my place. The one who made the list is the one who gets to judge. And so what is my place? It's not exposing. People read this and say, well, see, he says expose those. That's not what he says. Read what he says. He says the light will expose. Doesn't mean you carry a flashlight and go, hey, look, I know what you're doing over there. Listen, we need to stop worrying about getting mad at sinners who sin. It's part of their job title. It is. Sinners sin you know what the bible says and I know what's true in my life when I was living in sin I knew it why because light exposed that sin you see what Paul is telling us here is that we've got to shine but we shine with love and we shine with mercy, and we shine with grace. And when we shine because we are light, because Christ is in us, that light will expose other people. Not to you, not for you, to them and for them. When you interact with somebody at school and you are shining the light of Christ, and that doesn't mean carrying your big Schofield King James Bible and wearing your Jesus is all right with me shirt or whatever it is now or having your bumper. That's not what I'm talking about, shining talking about in the cafeteria you see that one kid that everybody else is picking on all the time that sits by themselves go over there and sit with them and start a conversation with them not so you can pat yourself on the back and tell everybody what just because you want to shine that lonely kid that no one ever talks to go pay attention to them That guy at work that everyone's always making fun of or that is always left out of the stuff invite them in That neighbor that's cranky, that drives you crazy, that you can't stand, that complains or calls the police or calls the neighborhood association all the time. Sneak out one day and mow their grass. Wash their car. Shine. Because you know what happens when we shine? It exposes the darkness. 
See, listen to me. This is the truth that we need to grab a hold of. Our society is not the way it is. Our nation is not the way it is. Our world is not the way it is because we're not loud enough. It's the way it is because we're not light enough. Paul ends with a song. Sounds like scripture. It says in verse 14, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It was a chorus. It's a song they sang in worship in the early church. So that when he quoted it, everybody remembered it. It comes from the book of Isaiah. A couple of passages in Isaiah deal with it. Isaiah 26 says, Your dead will live and their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. The dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Isaiah chapter 60 says this, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. Darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness are over the people of the earth, but the Lord rises and gives glory, and his glory appears before you. See, Paul is closing with a little song to remind us, it's time for us to wake up. You do have a light, but it's you. And it's time for us to stop worrying about how dark the darkness is or what they're doing in the dark or what we did in the dark. And it's time for us to start shining in the dark. Wake up, he says. Don't you see it? Don't you feel it? Shine. Because you see, when we allow the light of Christ, the transforming light of Christ to shine through us, nobody will ever be able to get out. Let's pray.